0: So, uh, we just celebrated, like uh, Pastor Jin mentioned a moment ago, a really wonderful Holy Week here. I think it was my favorite. I say that every year, so I guess that's a good thing. And um, now, in our series, we're returning to Mark's Gospel, but, sorry, we're having to rewind the history and go back before Holy Week, or actually, we're in Holy Week. We're on... Tuesday in the passage you just read, so I think we're able to handle that, right? And if you recall, a few weeks ago, before Holy Week in Mark's Gospel, we looked at how Jesus came into the city riding on a donkey, Palm Sunday, and the next day he goes to the temple and cleans it out, overturns the tables, drives out the greedy money changers. Now it's Tuesday. And these provocative actions that Jesus does and the words he speaks set the stage for the Jewish leaders to work together. And boy, they're a diverse group of people. We'll see some of them today. Maybe four or five groups that come together to kill Jesus on Friday, on Good Friday. So that's where we are in our study Of Mark. And in today's two confrontations, we'll actually discover two remarkable teachings of Jesus. And they help define our faith, how we live, what we believe. So uh, he's going to teach us today from these two stories about two spheres in which we live. I could call it the now and the later right where we are and where we will be forever, eternally. So, if you're ready, let's take a look at this first story. It's a confrontation story. And just to give you a little background, it's, it starts with the groups that are being uh, the adversaries of Jesus. And you know the names. You know, it's, you know, you read the New Testament, you run into these people all over the place, it seems, but verse 13 says, Pharisees and Herodians. So let's ask, who are the Pharisees? Um, They're not the good guys, so to speak, right? But for many people in Jesus' day, they were, because they were the guardians of the tradition of the Jewish heritage. They were the Could we call them the local pastors who took care of the people in their synagogues? They were the conservatives. They were the ones who were against the Roman oppression. And if you remember, Rome came into the Holy Land and put its rulers there and started to oppress them. So here's, I think you can kind of smell the way the Pharisees were the the nationalists. Now, there was another group not mentioned here, that were even more zealous. They were called the zealots. They were the terrorists, the freedom fighters. They're not mentioned here, but they are mentioned in the New Testament. The other group, verse 13, says are the Herodians. Now That's just the opposite. These are the people who go by the name of we love Herod. We love the Romans. Herod the great, who by this time is dead, but his son, sons and his grandsons are eventually going to inherit his kingdom. They're the ones in league with Rome. So can you imagine a more <laughs> uh, different group here? So you've got people who don't trust each other on the political lines coming together because they have a common foe. They want to get rid of Jesus, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they're gonna ask him a question, and Mark says they're trying to catch him and trap him in what he says. So, um, the story is short. Let me just read it one more time. Verse 13, later they, that is the Sanhedrin, the group of all the Jewish leaders, sent some of these Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they come to him and they say, and listen to this flattery here. They're buttering him up. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the, the way of God in, tr- in accordance with truth. Oh, talking about Right? Laying it on. (laughs) The, The interesting thing is, we know they don't believe a word of that, but we also know that every word they said is true. So now here's the question, here's the bait. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? It's a simple question. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy, so he says to them, why are you trying to trap me? So now the master teacher turns it on them and says, bring me a coin, a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he said, whose inscription is written on here? Whose image is this? Now, it's their coin. He's kind of putting them in an awkward place. And they say Caesar's, and so he comes out with this. It's almost a proverb, isn't it? Well then, here's my answer. Give to Caesar what is his, and give to God what is his. So let's talk for a minute about this uh, this question, is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar? Now, I don't know if you, you know, what do you think when you hear the word tax? <laughs> you may know that this coming week, you do know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Taxes are not new, it's as old as civilization. So, the Romans put on their enslaved peoples what was called a head tax, like a one-year, one-time-person tax. And it was uh, worth a uh, a denarius. And you see on the slide here in a moment what it looked like. And uh, on one side, you have the picture or the image of the emperor, in this case, Augustus, It could be another one during another time frame, and what's written on this coin, it says on the front, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine, father of the nation, son of the divine. Now, we're not used to that on our coins, right? We've got things like in God we trust, and it's not the god of the politician or the person in American history there. But Rome thought their Caesars were gods, sons of the gods, divine, demanding worship. And uh, the picture that you saw there, I, I have one in my hand here. I've been a biblical era coin collector for a number of years, so if you want to see it after the service, I'm... Happy for you to take a look at it. Uh, it's not the one Jesus used. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> no. Um, but I, I hope you can see that what's being set up here is uh, they're trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Have you ever had that kind of question asked you, you know, where somebody might say something like, "Have you stopped speeding on the highway?" So what do you say? If you say no, you're in trouble for what you're doing, or what you might be doing, right? If you say yes, then you're in trouble for what you already did. It's a a lose-lose proposition. So if Jesus says, yes, we should pay the tax, then the Pharisees and all the people, the local people who hate the tax, are like, oh, we're not going to follow you, Jesus. But if he says yes, yes, you should pay the... I'm sorry, what did I just say? The first one. (laughs) Now I'm on the horns of a dilemma, what did I say? All right, let's rewind that a bit. So, if he says, yes, you should pay it, the people will be upset. If he says, no, he becomes a revolutionary. And Rome will have him quicker than anything, right? So what's he gonna answer? His teaching is from that proverbial render to Caesar, render to God. He's teaching us and all his followers that there are two legitimate spheres of authority in this life. There's God and Caesar and allegiance to one does not mean disloyalty to the other necessarily. So what this means for us and for all Christians of all time is what Paul says in Romans 13. He writes, later than Jesus, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Even Rome, Paul? Yes, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Or Peter, in 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So, for us, this means that we will, should, do, pay our taxes. It means we obey our local ordinances, we obey our traffic laws, we exercise our right to vote, we pledge allegiance to our nation, And for some, it means serving in the armed forces to defend our nation. I hope we're all clear on that. As Christians, we are not rebels against our government. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean unquestioned obedience. Since Jesus teaches that there's two spheres, And these are not two separate spheres, like Caesar over here and God over here. Rather, God is over all and Caesar is under God. God deserves our total obedience. So, what happens when there's a conflict between God and Caesar? That's when we follow the example of what others have done before us in Scripture. Let's go way back to the Old Testament. Remember those Hebrew midwives who were commanded by the Egyptians, kill those Jewish babies. And Exodus chapter 1 tells us they refused to obey. Or especially in the book of Daniel, you have two accounts. Remember the three young men? They would not... Command, they would not obey the command to bow down before the Babylonian gods. So they went into a fiery furnace. Daniel 3. Daniel 6 Daniel was commanded, don't pray to your God. And he said, Well, I'm going to. And so he opened his windows so people could see him and he prayed. And he was also put in a den of lions, Daniel chapter 6. When you come to the New Testament, you see the same kind of pushback by the authorities in Acts chapter 4. The apostles were commanded to stop preaching the good news of the gospel about Jesus. You remember what it says there? They reply, well, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? See that? Caesar or God. So you be the judge. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Or the next chapter, they had the same kind of pushback, and the apostles were told by the authorities, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Acts five twenty nine. So what did that mean? I don't like to bring this up but I'm going to during COVID. What did it mean for us as a church? Well if you remember we obeyed our governing authorities that talked about closing our building and, at another time, wearing masks. Some of you remember, right? And why did we do that? We did it because the first thing we had in our mind was, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What's he telling us to do? He's telling us to value human life. And as Christians, we value human life even more than the society around us. So we thought, all right, we will comply on those two restrictions for a time. The elders prayed about it, talked about it. There was even a spectrum of ideas on the board and we came to a meeting of the mind that said, here's where we're going to land. We know we're going to offend some people on this side and some people on this side, but here's our decision. Now, if the government or the authorities would have forbidden any kind of meeting forever, well then, be assured, we would have disobeyed the authorities and paid whatever consequences there would be. Maybe that will be in the future, I don't know. But these actions that we just went through produced two extreme reactions in, could we say, Christians in the West. Not just in our country, but wherever these restrictions were implemented. As I see it, there was one of Fear based reaction that caused people to retreat and isolate. I'm not just talking about, like, you know, oh, we're not coming to church because we might get sick, but their whole mindset was one of protection, self protection, and moving into their home, so to speak, as their own fortress. On the other hand, there, there was a reaction of fight. We're not afraid, we're going to engage. And there has been a slowly growing Christian nationalism that even exists today, where people are saying, I don't care what the government says, they have no right to tell us anything. And between those two extremes, which I urge you to be careful because, no doubt, some of you fall over here, and some of you may fall over here. I think they are extreme reactions and non-biblical reactions. We are called to engage the world. We are called to be involved as salt and light. And also, we are called to submit to our authorities. And somehow, that has to be worked out on a case-by-case Basis. Well, hopefully I've stirred up enough of you. <laughs> so maybe, maybe like Jesus afterwards, one group and the other group are going to say, Pastor Bill, what are you talking about? How could you? Well, give me a little space here. I'm not going to say, show me a coin, <laughs> pull out a quarter. But it, it, it's, it, it, it's difficult. It will be difficult. Look, th- th- this was almost like a dress rehearsal a few years ago. I would, I would not say that we're going to get back to life as normal. This is normal. And we don't even know what normal will look like in the days to come. But here's what we do know. Our Lord said, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But more importantly, you give to God what is his. Well, what is his? What is his? Everything. Remember what Jesus told us? If you want to follow him in Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Not, if you want to be my disciple, give me a denarius and go on your merry way. No. Total surrender. Surrender total dedication, to the total Lord of everything. God's authority is supreme, and we owe him everything. So when we recognize his lordship and submit to his authority, we really do give back to God what is God's. This demand brings us to the place where we really were created to be. It's the best place. It's where life is found. Living with God now, and then knowing that the now will eventually become the forever. We're on the path to life. We don't apologize for that. We don't shrink back from it. We say, Lord Jesus, I am yours. And that's somewhat of what we see in the next challenge to Jesus' authority. Now this next one, it's verses 18 through 27. Enter another group. So I've told you about two groups, right? The Herodians and and the Pharisees. Now the Sadducees, do you see it in verse 18? Let me talk a bit about them. This group of Jewish people were the elites. They were the priests who controlled the temple. And they loved the Romans too because the Romans allowed the temple to operate as normal, which, if it stayed that way, increased their profits. These were the money changers. Remember? And the Sadducees also had a stripped-down Jewish Bible, so to speak, whereas the Pharisees took the whole thing, our Old Testament, you know, from Genesis to Malachi. The Sadducees only took the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they didn't believe, it says in verse 18, in a resurrection. So they were living... For the moment, much like people today in the West, right? Grab for all you can, because who knows what's coming after death? And what we see here is that these leaders, remember they hate Jesus, and they want to get rid of him, so this time they want to humiliate him by showing how ridiculous Jesus' teaching, like the Pharisees, about resurrection is. So they tell this story about a woman with seven husbands who were all brothers. Now, this story, I know it sounds kind of odd to us, but it reflects the Jewish law of marriage back in Deuteronomy 25 that said this: If a married man dies without any children, one of his brothers is to to marry the widow to hopefully produce an heir. Now we don't do that in our culture today, but that was part of the law of the Old Testament to keep the lines and the 12 tribes going. And I know you know this from another small book in the Old Testament. The name is the name of a woman, Ruth. Because Boaz marries Ruth because of this law in the Old Testament. All right, so they make up this story as if to say, really, Jesus, who's, this is verse 23, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? I mean, talk about polygamy. This is, a right? So Jesus, surely you're a fool to believe this. So Jesus replies, And he doesn't hesitate here. He says, well, hold it. Are you not in error? Whoa. What kind of error do they have here? Because these were the elite, these were the know-it-alls, the powerful people. Jesus goes right at them at their heart, and he says, you do not know the scriptures, and you do not know the power of God. And at the end, in verse 27, he says, You are badly mistaken. Wow. So, how does Jesus address them? Well, he he does it by saying, You don't know the scriptures. And what he does then is pull out one of the scriptures that they believed in from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when God said those words to Moses in the book of Exodus, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. So Jesus reads it like, not I was the God, but I am the God. They are still living now, Jesus says, and they're waiting for their resurrection. And for the power of God, what does Jesus say? In verse 25, he says, you don't understand what God is going to do. God will renew humanity by reordering our relationships in heaven. There will be no marriage in heaven since God's power will create just a brand new dimension, human relationships will continue, but human procreation will be over. God's power. You don't understand that. James Edwards wrote a commentary on Mark, and I'm quoting from a wonderful sentence. He said, God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. You see how small we are? You see how huge God is? Let your mind wander in the creative majesty and mystery of God and what he will do. You, sad you sees, you just don't get it. You don't interpret the Bible right. You don't understand God and his power right. So, my question to you is, if we Read these two stories together, like we're doing this morning. Why does Mark put these two here? Apparently it all happened on the same day, Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus being attacked here, attacked there, and out comes one of his teachings, another of his teachings. Can we see a theme here? Well, I think so. I think Mark wants us to understand that being a Christian, following Jesus, means that we live in these two realms, now and forever. In the present, with God and Caesar, two authorities, and in the forever, with just God as our authority and Lord. Does that make sense? So... I take for me and for you what Jesus says to the Sadducees. Let's take this to heart. We must know the Scriptures in order to live well now and forever. We must know the power of God to live well now and forever. So what happens when your job seems so frustrating And you're tempted to just go in and blow up in anger over the way you're being treated. And yet you know that's not right. My challenge would be, know the scriptures and know the power of God. What does the Bible tell me about unrighteous anger? How do I handle that? And... What can God do in my heart to crush that anger so that it dissipates? It's not just know the Bible as if, you know, put it all in your memory bank and out will come the proper response, kind of like a computer, write a Google question. No, you can know the Bible well and still not know the power of God. Or what happens when your marriage is so fragile that you're starting to wonder what it would be like if you were married to someone else? Well, what does the scripture say about that? The Bible tells us that marriage is designed for one man, one woman for life. Which puts your mind in a frame that says, As hard as this is, I need to work it out. I need to work on me. Oh, but I can't change. And they can't change. You forgot the power of God to change people. You know, I was thinking, (laughs) if I didn't believe in the power of God to change people, I think I'd be a carpenter like my grandfather was. Because then I could take some tube of 4s and sheetrock or whatever, and change them into something that I could look at and say, ah, that's done. But I can say, after being in the ministry now for over 40 years, (laughs) I am in the construction business (laughs) because I've seen God use His Word and His power to chisel away at people's habits and hearts and lives. Not instantaneously, usually not, but progressively by God's power and grace. What happens when your child seems so hard to reach and get through, or, you know, disconnected? Rebellious, maybe? You just feel like, "Ah." Like, what does the scripture say about parenting? And it says a lot. You love your kids and love means not just being nice, but it also means correcting them. But it means not giving up on them as well. But my kids, they won't, they won't change, they did this. The power of God in your heart and in theirs, keep praying, keep loving. Well, what happens when you've stopped praying because you haven't seen the answers that you wanted, that you hoped for? Well, what does the Scripture say? God gives his promises. Hang on to them. We need to stand on the promises of God. But we also trust in the power of God, Prayer is not simply a a slot machine. You put the request in, pull the handle, and out comes your request. Come on. God is not a genie. Rub the bottle the right way, and boop, you will get what you want. That is not prayer. Prayer is submitting our hearts to God, knowing that he sees the big picture, the eternal picture, and he's at work even when we think he's not. And what happens when the pain in your body is sapping your joy? And you just wonder how long you can keep going. You remember the Scriptures. You know what the Word of God says. And you remember that the power of God is there. The resurrection power of Easter will one day give you healing if God doesn't do it in this life. He will when Jesus returns. You see, it's because our future is certain and the scriptures are clear that we can live differently now. We borrow that hope from the future and bring it into our present. It's like some people rent and some people rent to own. (laughs) You know the difference? And we are not just renting, we are renting to own. Every payment we make, every step we take with our Savior is just one more deposit down on that eternal inheritance reserved for us. So dear friends, when, when life is good or when your days are terrible, if you're grounded in the Scriptures and you're trusting in the power of God, you will stand strong. You will be able to say, like that hymn that we sang at the Tenebrae service, when peace like a river attends my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever your lot God will teach you to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And Father, that is our prayer right now, that the words of Jesus would remind us to trust in the scriptures and in your power. May we be followers of you now and forever. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.